over the last several years, I've taken an approach uh, with evangelism whereby I engage someone in a conversation and I ask them a question. And the question I like to ask the person with whom I'm speaking is this. If someone were to ask you, what do Christians mean when they talk about the gospel, how would you answer that question? I put them on the spot a little bit. It gets them thinking. They start to think, oh, how would I answer that question? How would I answer the question, what is the gospel? And I've had a chance to ask this question to quite a few people, younger people, older people, various ethnicities, various religious backgrounds, some people who've gone to church, some people who have not gone to church, uh, even people with cross tattoos or Bible uh, verse tattoos on their arms. But among all the people whom I've asked this question, I have yet to hear a single clear biblical answer. I can't think of one. Think about that. Think about how few people can answer the question, what is the gospel? I've had the opportunity to ask this question twice this past week. One was a man who moved here from Israel. After spending four years as an Israeli soldier, he moved to the U.S. to get a fresh start. And I had a chance to ask him this question. I said, if someone were to ask you what a Christian's mean when they talk about the gospel, what would you say? And he goes, the gospel? What is that? That's my question for you. And I'm like, yes, that is exactly what I'm aiming for when I do this. I mean, like, that is like the perfect response. So I had the opportunity to share the gospel with him. It was a good conversation. And I gave him a little gospel tract that we've had here from Greg Gilbert. What is the gospel? Good conversation, but never heard it. Didn't even know what the word meant. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to talk with a man who was installing flooring in my mother-in-law's home. And I got in a conversation with him. I just asked him if he ever goes to church. And he said, oh, I used to go to this church in Kirkland for, for a while, but I haven't been going lately. So I asked him the question. No idea. Couldn't answer it. Having gone to a Christian church for a period of time, he could not answer the question, what is the gospel? Friends, there is a lack of clarity among the people with whom we live regarding the gospel. And that speaks to the importance of us being clear on answering that question. It needs to be clear in our minds. What is the gospel? The good news that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. That is central to Christianity, to who we are as Christians. We need to be clear on the gospel, and we need to be able to clearly share it with people so they can hear this good news. Don't make the mistake that I've often made in assuming that people have heard it and understood it and simply rejected it. That is probably true of very few people in your life. We need to be clear on the gospel. And the gospel comes to us through the story of God's dealings with humanity, which we know through God's word. As followers of Jesus, we have a story to tell. It is a true story, and it is a powerful story. 
We have been studying the Psalms, and the Psalms are a wonderful songbook of God's people, which uses beautiful poetic language expressing a wide range of human emotions in praise of the one true living God. But the Psalms are also rich in biblical theology, helping to deepen our understanding of God's story, of the glorious gospel. Our text this morning is Psalm 110, which is referred to as a royal song, or sometimes it's referred to as a messianic psalm. John Collins notes that one of the themes we see throughout the psalms is the special place of David and his dynasty in God's dealings with his people. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that David and his dynasty have a special place in God's dealings with his people? Well, it helps to remember our story. Of course, our story begins in Genesis. And when God made our first parents, Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion over the earth, and they were to rule over the earth, representing the Lord as they were fruitful and multiplied. And we know what happened. We know that Adam and Eve decided to rebel against the Lord. Rather than joyfully submitting to him, they went out from under his lordship and sought to go their own way and sought to do what was good and right in their eyes. They sinned against the Lord And thus they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. God rendered his judgments. He rendered his judgments. They listened to the voice of the serpent, Satan, in the garden, believing a lie. And so when God rendered his judgments, he addressed both Adam and Eve, but then he also addressed the serpent. And we read about this in Genesis chapter 3. And one of the things that stands out in Genesis chapter 3 is verse 15, where the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Did you know that this verse provides important context for the rest of Scripture? This conflict that the Lord describes here is a cosmic, epic conflict between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, between the descendants of the serpent and the descendant of the woman. This conflict plays out in the rest of Scripture. In an article from Ligonier, we read, As Genesis 3.15 reveals, man versus serpent is a cosmic struggle. It is God who perpetuates enmity between the human race and its primal enemy. The seed of the woman will be bruised by the destructive efforts of the seed of the serpent, but the woman's descendants will fight back. The seed of the woman has bruised the head of his enemy, and he will crush it. Mankind is given the tactical advantage over the serpent. There will be real war, but God will graciously give his people the victory. In this verse, we see this conflict, this struggle 
that will play out throughout the rest of human history. But how would this be fulfilled? How would the Lord, what the Lord promised in this verse, be fulfilled, whereby the offspring of the woman would deal a deadly blow to the head of the serpent? Well, as the story unfolds, the Lord called a man named Abram, whom he renamed Abraham, and made a covenant promising Abraham that he would give him the land of Canaan, be the father of a great nation, be blessed, and bless all nations in him and his offspring. So how would the Lord fulfill all these promises, and how would all the people of the earth be blessed through Abraham? Well, we fast forward to the book of Exodus, and we see the Lord delivered the descendants of Abraham, the Hebrew people, out of slavery in Egypt as he said he would. But before bringing them into the land of Canaan, he established a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, the Lord entered into a covenant with the descendants of Abraham, the people people of Israel, whereby he promised, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will be your God. And he thus constituted Israel as a nation, as his people. And the purpose of the covenant was to enable them to enjoy the blessings of the Lord and for them to be the blessing to the other nations. So we begin to see the promises made to Abraham take shape. We see him blessed with many descendants. We see the Lord loving them, providing for them, entering into a covenant with them, and promising that somehow, some way, blessings would come to the nations through them. Eventually, the Lord gave the people of Israel a king. Their first king was Saul, who proved to be faithless and was removed by the Lord. Then the Lord made David king over Israel. And the Lord made a covenant with him. We read about this in 2 Samuel 7. In verse 16, referring to one of David's descendants, The Lord said, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What an extraordinary promise the Lord made to David. Eternal kingdom. And here we see what I mentioned earlier, that David and his dynasty play a central role in God's dealings with his people and the nations. In their book, God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam write, the Davidic covenant narrows the mediator of blessing to the nations from the nation of Israel as a whole to the king who represents and stands for the nation. So we see this unfolding plan of God whereby David and his dynasty play a significant role in God's dealings with his people and with the nations. David would play a role in the cosmic struggle whereby the seed of the woman would strike a decisive blow to the seed of the serpent. As a descendant of Abraham, David would play a role in the Lord blessing the peoples of the earth through him. As God's chosen king, one of his descendants would sit on an eternal throne. David and his dynasty play a significant role in our story. David is the author of Psalm 110 which reveals important things about God's plan and is the most referenced Old Testament passage in the New Testament. In our passage, we will see the king enthroned, the king will rule, 
and the king will be victorious. I'm going to read Psalm 110. I encourage you to follow along. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. First, we see the king enthroned. The psalm begins with an oracle from God. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If you look closely in your Bible, you may notice that the first instance of the word Lord in verse 1 is in all caps, but the second instance is not. So it reads, the Lord, all caps, said to my Lord, not all caps, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The first use of the word Lord, which may be in all caps in your Bible, translates the divine name, Yahweh. And the second use translates the Hebrew word Adani, which can be translated as my ruler, master, or king. So another way of saying this verse would be, Yahweh said to my king, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. God invites the king to sit at his right hand, which is a position of supreme honor and power. In other words, King David records Yahweh giving a place of supreme honor and power to someone other than him. Someone greater than him. And God promises to subdue his enemies, putting them under his authority, literally under his feet. Right away, the psalm gives confidence and hope to God's people. Confidence in the Lord and hope for the future. God's people are reminded that He is sovereign. He is sovereign over the nations. He will execute His plan, and His plan will be successful. The Lord does all that He pleases, He accomplishes all that He sets out to do. And God's people are also reminded that their enemies will not prevail. The enemies of the Lord, those who do evil, those who do wicked, will not ultimately and finally succeed, but will be subdued according to the will of the Lord. Therefore, they have hope for the future. The psalm reminds us of Psalm chapter 2, which is also considered a royal psalm. In Psalm chapter 2, the enemy nations of the Lord's chosen king rise up in rebellion against him. 
seeking to overthrow his rule. And how does the Lord respond? In Psalm 2, we see the Lord laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. As if there's any chance the enemies of the Lord could succeed. So, the psalm begins with an oracle of the Lord, whereby Yahweh's king is enthroned at his right hand, and his enemies are made his footstool. Next, we see that the king will rule. We read that Yahweh sends forth from Zion his scepter by which the king rules and wields authority. In verse 3, we see that the king's people will offer themselves freely as the king exerts his power and rules in the midst of their enemies. Jim Hamilton notes that the Messiah's people will make themselves free will offerings on the king's behalf. On the day of his strength, when the king goes out to battle, his people will want to risk all for him, even their very lives. No conscription necessary. The people gladly give themselves to the king and his mission. Not only are the king's enemies made his stool, but his people joyfully serve him and devote themselves to him. There's a clear distinction in this psalm. There's a clear distinction between the enemies of the king and those who joyfully devote themselves to the king. And we see this distinction all throughout Scripture. Scripture continually confronts us with the reality that there are those who belong to the Lord and those who are enemies of the Lord. There's no in-between. It's one or the other. Not only are the king's enemies made his footstool, but his people joyfully serve him and devote themselves to him. In verse 4, we hear God's solemn oath to the king. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The great king who will arise in the line of David will be a priest king. The roles of priest and king are brought together in Yahweh's chosen king. But he will not be a Levitical priest. You see, when the Lord established his covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, he established a priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, whereby these priests would offer sacrifice on behalf of God's people to make atonement for their sins so they could enjoy God's presence among them. And these priests had to continually and repeatedly offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Their work was never done. But the Lord's king will not be a priest in the order of the Levites, but in the order of Melchizedek. Well, what does that mean? Well, we don't know a lot about Melchizedek, but he does appear in the biblical story at the time of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham's nephew Lot was taken captive by enemy kings. And when Abraham heard the report, he gathered his fighting men and set out to defeat these enemy kings and rescue Lot and his family. And he succeeded. 
And once he was bringing Lot and his family and those people home with all the spoils of the war, he encountered Melchizedek, who was king of Salem, which was Jerusalem, and priest of God Most High. Melchizedek was a priest king. He proceeded to bless Abraham and received a tenth of his spoil. Then Melchizedek disappeared, never to be heard from again until Psalm 110. But it is important to note that when Abraham met Melchizedek, it was Melchizedek who blessed him. And it was Melchizedek who received a tenth of his spoil. Melchizedek did the blessing and receiving of the tenth. And that reveals to us his superiority to Abraham. As Derek Kidner points out, this proved his priority over the whole Abrahamic people and over the Levitical priesthood in particular. He was greater. This mysterious figure was greater than Abraham and all his descendants, including the Levitical priesthood. Although his appearance in the story is brief, he was a significant figure. And here in our text, we see that the Lord's king would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So Yahweh's king will rule over God's people and will be superior to David and superior to Abraham and all of the Levitical priests. He will rule as priest king. And finally, we see that the king will be victorious. The Lord's empowering presence is with the future king, ensuring his victory over his enemies. Back in Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the Lord promised the Davidic king, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And here we see the depiction of the fulfillment of this. A day of judgment is coming for those who oppose Yahweh's chosen king. None who oppose him will stand. They will not succeed. They will face judgment. Again, this reminds us of the warning at the end of Psalm 2 where we read, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The warning is issued to the nations, to the kings of the nations. Now is your chance to take refuge in the Lord's chosen king. Do so. You will fail to do so at your own peril. You will face judgment if you fail to heed this warning. Remember the battle the Lord spoke of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? Well, here we see it playing out on a global scale. The nations, the kings, the rulers that oppose Yahweh's king reveal themselves to be the seed of the serpent. 
through their rebellion against Yahweh's king, they reveal who they are. Jim Hamilton writes, Through the agency of the future king from David's line, God will shatter the kings who prove themselves to be the seed of the serpent by their unrepentance, and he will shatter the head of their father, the devil. The psalm concludes with the king refreshing himself by the brook, following his victory. Though the nations rage, though evil abounds, though the seed of the serpent seeks to destroy, Yahweh's king is victorious. The New Testament begins with an explosive statement. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, referring to God's anointed and chosen king, was a son of David and the son of Abraham. The New Testament begins with this explosive declaration that what has been prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures about Yahweh's king has been fulfilled in Jesus. And this claim would prove to divide the world. Indeed, this claim divided the people of Jesus' day. Jesus's, the people of Jesus' day were divided in their responses to him. And Jesus said so. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, he said, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Some people responded to Jesus gladly, receiving him joyfully, following him, believing in him. And some rejected him, even opposed him, seeking his demise. Toward the end of his life, Jesus was questioned about his authority by the chief priests, scribes, and elders in Jerusalem. The religious leadership amongst the Jewish people in Jerusalem, by and large, opposed Jesus, sought to undermine him, sought to discredit him. They challenged his authority. But at the end of Mark chapter 12, he turned the table and challenged them. In Mark 12, 35 through 37, we read, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, Yahweh's anointed and chosen king, how can they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great 
throng heard him gladly. What a question. A father does not refer to his son as my Lord. That's not how it works. And yet, Jesus is saying, scribes say that David refers to him, his son, as my Lord. No one provided an answer. Apparently, they hadn't thought that one through. They hadn't gotten that far in their biblical theological studies. Everyone just kind of heard him and remained silent. Jesus was saying, if David, who wrote Psalm 110, was saying, my God said to my Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, then David was acknowledging that the Messiah would be greater than him. His point was this, the Christ, God's anointed king, who was a descendant of David, would in fact be greater than David. So Jesus finished by saying, David, calls, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Jesus did not answer that question explicitly, but he was pointing the people to what was the fact that the Messiah was not merely David's son, but also God's son. Jesus was revealing something significant regarding the identity of the Messiah, something significant about himself. He is the eternal priest king who is greater than David, greater than Abraham, and greater than all of the Levitical priests. And the Lord confirmed this through the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. This gets to the heart of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God, the one true living God, Yahweh, saves wretched sinners like us. Through Jesus Christ, the eternal priest king, who came into the world and lived a perfectly sinless life, which we've all failed to do, and was therefore able to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice once for all for our sins, defeating all our enemies for us. He went to the cross to take the punishment we deserve in our place. And God demonstrated that he accepted Christ's sacrifice by raising him from the dead. And Christ appeared to hundreds of people, proving that he is alive. And after 40 days, he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Friends, the good news of the gospel that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. If you are not a Christian, I urge you to believe in Christ and be saved. Salvation is found in no other name except the name of Jesus Christ. You see, the good news is only good news for you if you turn from your sin and believe in Christ, 
Believe and be saved. After his ascension, Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit on his people on the day of Pentecost. And Peter had the opportunity to preach the gospel to a large crowd. And when he preached the gospel, he quoted from Psalm chapter 16 and Psalm chapter 110. And I want you to hear a portion of what he said when he preached the gospel to this large crowd. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, quote Psalm 16 here, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. In preaching the gospel to this crowd, Peter proclaimed that Jesus is the fulfillment of these psalms, of these prophecies. He is this king who has come into the world to rescue us and to save us. Indeed, he is Yahweh's chosen king. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our priest king who is seated at the right hand of the Father. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, and he is victorious. This has all kinds of wonderful implications for us. Let me just share a few with you briefly. First, we can have confidence that our sins are forgiven. Remember, the Levitical priest had to continually offer sacrifices, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Not so with Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 to 14, we read, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We can have confidence that he forgives all our sins. When we go to Jesus, we receive the forgiveness of all our sins, past, present, and future. We do not need to be afraid that there will be some sins that are just too many, that he does not forgive. We can have confidence in Jesus Christ that his sacrifice once for all covers all our sins. Oh, what wonderful assurance we receive in Christ. We also see that we receive mercy and grace in our time of need. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, we read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, our great priest king, is eager to give us mercy and grace. He delights to give us these things as we go to him. We can go to him with the assurance that when we go to him, we receive help. He has the power to help us. And he sympathizes with us in our weakness. He loves us. He cares for us. When we go to him, we receive help. We receive mercy and grace at his throne of grace. Finally, Christ is interceding for us. In Romans 8.34, we read, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What does it matter who condemns us? It doesn't matter at all who condemns us because we know who has accepted us. God has accepted us in Christ Jesus who is continually interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, and he will not quit, and he will not give up. We can have confidence that God has accepted us in Christ, as Christ is the one who is continually interceding for us. Jesus is our priest king who rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father, who has made his enemies his footstool, as he is victorious over his enemies, effectively crushing the head of the seed of the serpent and and is a blessing to all peoples of the earth as he is gathering people from all nations into his kingdom. As his people, we joyfully devote ourselves to the king, knowing that at the cross he has defeated all our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Our confidence is in him. We have nothing to fear. Our hope is is secure. Praise the Lord. This is our story. This is the glorious gospel, the message that our world desperately 
needs to hear. I want to close by reading the prayer Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, we worship you, we adore you. You are the one true living God. We thank you and we praise that you have made yourself known to us. You have made known to us the story of your dealings with humanity. And through this story, you have revealed the glorious gospel. It's good news, the salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would know this story, that we will meditate on this story, that we will rejoice in this good news. We pray that our confidence will be in you, our hope will be secure. We pray that we will be a people who freely and joyfully devote ourselves to our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.